You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. There's really no excuse for not doing at least a little bit of these things. Once you and your brain recognize how good it is, you will want to prioritize it. You'll start to find the time because it's taken a bigger place of importance in your life. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Happier at Work podcast. My guest today is Lindsay Recknell. We have a great conversation starting around the area of burnout. I think an area of huge interest, but we also speak about psychological safety and in particular how that pertains to mental health in the workplace. So Lindsay is a workplace mental health consultant, a speaker, a podcaster and an expert in hope. I just love that phrase. As a certified psychological health and safety advisor, Lindsay works with companies and organizations who increase their levels of psychological health and safety in the workplace using positive psychology. That's evidence-based practical tips and techniques to increase well-being within organizations by increasing well-being in individuals. She empowers individuals, strengthens teams and transforms organisations through her Hope Motivates Action, Mental Health in Minutes and Burnout and Boundaries programmes. Lindsay lives in Calgary with her husband and her two golden retrievers. I know you're really going to enjoy today's episode and I would love to know what you think and what actions you're going to take as a result. As always, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I will do a summary at the end of the key points and I would love to get you involved in the conversation. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining me on the Happier at Work podcast today. You are so welcome. I'm absolutely delighted to have you here. Would you like to give listeners a bit of a flavour of your background and and how you got to where you are today? Hello. Thank you so much, so, so much for having me. I am, it's such a pleasure to be here. I've been following you for a long time um, because you and I have so much in common when it comes to wanting people to be happier at work. So um, my journey in, in workplace mental health started uh, a long time ago, right at the beginning of my career, but most um, sort of most urgently happened for me when I had a complete and utter meltdown, overwhelm, burnout, um, just, you know, hit my bottom back in November of 2018. And I remember going into uh, my, one of my boss's office, I was working for two people at the time, and I went into one of one of their offices. And I just said, here's what's going on for me. Um, There's a lot going on at home. There's a lot going on at work and I am totally burnt out. And she looked at me and she said, how can I help? And I thought, whoa, now there's a response that I wasn't expecting um, because, you know, your traditional boss says, I don't really care about what's going on in your personal life. Get back to work. And that was a response that I'd had from the other boss. He absolutely said, 
I'm sorry that that's happening to you, but we need to get a job done. So please continue going on this way. And I thought, no, no, no. Everybody needs to have the first experience. Everybody needs to um, work, deserves to work at a place where they feel psychologically safe to come to work and be their whole selves, right? Show up and be their whole selves, whatever that looks like in a respectful and productive way. Of course, it doesn't give you, um, you know, permission to slack off or not do your job, but it just, it gives an opportunity for yourself and your colleagues and your leaders to see you as your um, beautiful, well-rounded human and to, um, you know, sort of embrace all of that. And so from there, I just, I started having more of these conversations. I started um, having the privilege to have more of these conversations and learn more about psychological safety and its implications at work and the uh, positive overflow effects of our homes and our communities because of it. And um, yeah, and that leads us to where we are today. And I'm curious to kind of, before we move on to talking about psychological safety in particular, these two different bosses that you had, is that in the same organization? They were not. They were in two okay. different organizations. Yeah. I um, So I've been a consultant for a long time and I was operations manager for ironically a communications company and um and then a IT consultant in the in the good company so to speak <laughs> okay okay yeah no because i think you're so right like this attitude of how can i help it's so positive and it, you know it's and it doesn't put the onus on the boss to have everything figured out either it's more like you tell me how i can make things easier or make things better for you um I would love to know if you're comfortable with it, like what does that look like? This sense of overwhelm and this sense of reaching a state of burning out, essentially, because I know and I, it's not just that this is a hot topic at the moment. I think it's it's a hot topic for good reason, I think, because a lot of people are experiencing that, especially in the pandemic, when there's flex, there's a lot more flexibility and therefore people are working longer hours. There, there's pressure to get more things done. So I'd love to know if you have any any ideas to share around like what to watch out for when it comes to feeling that sense of overwhelm and, and reaching towards burnout. And the reason I ask is because I very regularly f- can f- feel that sense of overwhelm where I'm like, I have too much on and kind of feels to me like people are dragging out of me and, oh, this person needs that and this other person needs that. And I need to I need to kind of put everyone else first before myself. But then it hasn't reached for me a stage of burnout, which I I understand is a lot more severe than that. So I'd love to get your your views, your own experience of what that was for you. You bet. Um, so you're absolutely right. There is a difference between having too much stress, too much work, too much pressure, too much all the things. And when you tip over into feeling like you don't have enough, not enough energy, not enough Mm. motivation, and truly not enough cares left to give. That is when you can feel like you've now moved into burnout. It's prolonged elevated stress chemicals in your body that will lead to burnout. Um, And also, it's not enough just to remove the stressors in your life. Um, You know how when you are working on a big project or you have a really big deadline and you're busting your butt to to do everything you possibly can to meet that deadline and do a really great job and you feel tons and tons of pressure. 
you would think that once you deliver that project, once that deadline is in the past, you would feel this sense of relief and, you know, I made it. But just because that deadline is in the past, if you haven't done something to lower those stress chemicals in your body and close what um, some burnout specialists have called the stress cycle, you need to close that stress cycle, which lowers the chemicals in your body, which is the... um, which makes you feel better, which, which will reverse the path into burnout um, and, you know, put your parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system back to your sort of resting baseline. Yeah. And so how do you close that stress cycle? I mean, is that taking complete rest from work? Is it doing some journaling? Is it, is it meditation? Is it seeing, seeing a therapist? You know, what, what, what can actually help in that situation? Can I answer yes to all of those questions? <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely can. Maybe it is that it's it's no one size fits all. It depends on the situation. It depends on the individual person. But it'd be great to get an idea of what are some of the things that people can do. You bet. So um, it is absolutely dependent on the person. Stress is a chemical response in your body. So whatever you can do to change the, to positively change the chemical makeup is going to help. So Hmm. things, the traditional things that we know, move your body. And I don't mean that you need to go for a run or go for a bike ride. Anything as simple as washing the dishes instead of uh, washing the dishes by hand, instead of putting them in the dishwasher is enough to get the blood flowing. And that positive momentum will carry you to bigger and better um, ways to move your body. You know, they, they can be as efficient as parking in the farthest parking lot when you're going to the mall. Um, it doesn't have to be big things. Also laughing, laughing increases positive chemicals in your body, um, which will counteract the stress chemicals in your body. Also, your brain doesn't recognize the difference between fake laughter and real laughter. So if you're feeling like you don't have enough cares to give and you can possibly, you can't possibly think of anything to laugh about, just fake it for a bit. Hmm. And then it feels so ridiculous that real laughter happens quite naturally after that. (laughs) But either will help. Your brain doesn't know the difference. Um, But the, the positive response in your body is awesome. There's a reason that they say uh, for babies, premature babies, that skin to skin contact is so important. Same goes for us as adults. If you can have some positive physical touch for longer than your quick, you know, five second greeting, um, Mm. you know, if you can, if you can awkwardly perhaps hug your family for 20 seconds, 25 seconds, that has the power to bring your stress chemicals down and increase those positive chemicals in your body. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I would say is creative expression. Um, you know, the, you know how adult coloring books were a thing for oh, quite yeah. some time. It's yeah. that creative expression piece. It's that ability for your brain to concentrate on something Have else. Right and, here. Right. The mindfulness <laughs> coloring book. Exactly. <laughs> For anyone who is listening rather than watching, uh, I just held up an adult colouring book, which is a mindfulness colouring book. I just flip it open to random pages and and start colouring in as a break. It's really, really nice. Yeah, it's it's a way that you are closing your stress cycle and you didn't even know. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Dare I say then that all of these things can be implemented proactively as opposed to as a reaction to burnout specifically. And so if you're feeling overwhelmed and I know, you know, 
I don't, I'm not preaching here from a place of like, oh, I have all the answers, but I know myself when I get overwhelmed, the desire is there to, I need to get this done. I need to, I need to work on this. And it's such a long list of things that you feel like you have to get done and you work long hours to try and get them done. And um, certainly thinking back to my corporate career, the last thing that you want to do is go out for a walk to take a break because you think, oh, well, I can't afford to take that five minutes, that 20 minutes, whatever it might be. And, um, but that's, that's actually the best thing that you can do. And I know from experience, having done that, it is, but the temptation is still there to keep on plowing through all of the things, all of the work that you have on. Um, so, I mean, all of the things that you've mentioned there, so the movement, the laughter, the physical touch and the creativity can all be applied in a positive and proactive way, I would say as well then. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> It's kind of annoying that you have to do these things to feel better, but you can't feel better until you do these things. So there has to be some intention behind it there. um, You know, there has to be some proactivity, but it can also be a reactive response. You, You just have to work harder when you're trying to reverse something as opposed to prevent it from happening in the first place. Um, And I mentioned a lot of those things because they can be done starting small. Um, one thing I didn't mention was breathing. You know, we talk about breathing or meditation or taking a Zen moment. It doesn't even need to take five minutes. You could be sitting in the car at a red light and take four deep breaths, and that will start the process of closing the stress cycle. How long is a red light? A minute, you know, a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. There's really no excuse for not doing at least a little bit of these things. And once you once you and your brain recognize how good it is, you will want to prioritize it. You will want to add an extra five minutes or you, know, you will want to get up that 15 minutes earlier so that you can walk the dog before you start work or whatever that looks like for you. You'll start to find the time mm-hmm. because it's important. Um, it's taken a bigger place of importance in your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a couple of personal examples to share from that. Uh, At the start of this year, I took part in, I mean, I don't know how else to call it, like a Twitter challenge, which was the hashtag 100 days of walking. Mm -hmm. And I got to the 100 days. And because it was such an integral part of my day at that stage, I've continued now. I think it's 168, 169 days, something like that. Um, So the way I see that is I'm two thirds of the way through the second 100 days, which is a really great feeling. And when you first start, you're like 100 days seems like such a long time, but it's those small steps. It's doing something every day and the impact that it has then is much, much greater. And the other example is breathing. So last night I was doing a meditation and it, you know, I was just listening to it like, okay, yeah. And it was, it was right before bed. I was lying down in my bed and they brought out this thing where like breathe in for four and breathe out for four. And for the first time in a long time, I just noticed a physical change in my body just from elongating my breath for, for really focusing four, four counts in, four counts out and an absolute physical change to totally relaxed. It was unbelievable. Doesn't that feel so cool? Like it just gives me shivers to hear you think, to hear you describe it. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So we've got to spend a bit of time on burnout, which was not the intended topic of conversation today, but I think it's really, really important to do that and kind of tying things together. This idea of how can I help for you as an employee, 
it was just a pure example of psychologically safe environment where it was okay for you to go and share your experience. And the response that you got was really, really positive. So maybe if we talk about like, what does psychological safety, what does that mean? Like, what, how would you describe that in an organization? So I would describe psychological safety as feeling comfortable to bring your whole self to work. Mm. All of your messiness, all of your creativity and innovation, um, you know, all of your opinions and being feeling comfortable to express yourself in, again, professional and respectful ways. It doesn't give you, you know, an excuse for carte blanche uh, disrespect or, you know, dissension, um, loud and bold and inappropriate dissension. But it absolutely, um, you know, you have so much to offer. You have so many gifts and so many strengths in so many ways. And you get a lot of that gifts and strengths from your life, not just your work life. And you should, you should have the opportunity to bring all of that to your workplace because that's just going to raise collective awesomeness at work, right? If we can, if we don't have to check ourselves at the door, um, we can bring all of those sort of non-traditional value to the organization. Um, the organization is going to benefit. You are going to benefit and your organization is going to benefit. We know that if we are engaged in what we do, if we feel psychologically safe at work, the benefits to the organization are undisputable. Mm, so why would yeah. we not encourage creating environments of psychological safety? Yeah, no, I mean, you'll get absolutely no arguments from me in, <laughs> in, in that respect. And I have certainly worked in organizations where it has been psychologically unsafe that you can't really bring yourself to work or there's some fear around speaking your mind, things like that. So I have, I have experienced that firsthand myself. I'd love to, to, I mean, this is specifically in relation to mental health and well-being. So I'd love to get your thoughts on like what what steps that we can start to take to to put something like that in place. Or to change, you know, if we are in this psychologically unsafe environment, like what can we actually do about it? So the number one thing I would suggest is start to have these kinds of conversations. Mm -hmm. um, the work that the work that I do through my organization called Mental Health in Minutes is we normalize mental health conversations at work. We want to make conversations about our mental health as normalized as any other conversation we have at work. You wouldn't think twice about talking to your colleague about going for a run. Why do we think twice about talking to our colleague about burnout? You know, those things can be in the same conversation, right? Those things should be as, as water cooler conversation as any other water cooler conversation. Mm -hmm. So if we as leaders and as humans can start to have these conversations and make them part of every day, you know, this is just how we work here. That's going to go a long way to reducing the stigma of talking about mental health at work. I also want to say, you know, traditionally, we t when, when you think about mental health, people automatically think about mental illness, right? Our traditional diagnosable mental illness, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, you know, um, 
and but and mental illness is super super important but it is one of the um one of the things on the spectrum that is our mental health right we have everybody has physical health the same way that we all have mental health yeah. and i think you know i'm happy to see how how language is continuing to evolve and more people are recognizing that mental health is not just mental illness but that mental illness is part of overall mental health and um somebody asked me the other day you know will you run out of things to talk about with mental health absolutely not <laughs> because no. What affects us as humans is what affects our mental health. Um, and I think that's kind of key to think about as well, because if people are feeling awkward about talking about workplace mental health, it's really talking about all of the things that affect you as a human, which is, you know, your um, your boundaries, your um, your innovative ideas, your ability to do deep work and get into flow and that is the that is your your mental health and your well-being um it we're not just speaking about diagnosable mental illness if you'd like to know more about what i can do for your business please head over to my website happieratwork.ie where i have more details on the services that i offer I offer various different types of things for organizations like yours. I offer speaking, coaching, consulting, with a huge focus on data and analytics and how to use data to make better people decisions. I have a couple of ongoing public projects at the moment in relation to researching employee well-being first-time managers and I will be making those results publicly available as well. So if you would like to get access to that, head on over to my website. That's really the the crux of what it is that we're talking about today, that it, it's it's it always has traditionally been associated with mental health issues, let's say, and mm-hmm. someone has an issue, but that's not what, what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the fact that everyone has mental health in the same way that we all have physical health. And just because you're not experiencing any issues or that you, you're not struggling with anything right now doesn't mean that you won't struggle with something in the future. So kind of going back to the earlier point about being proactive, it's important to take care of ourselves in that way so that when it comes to having issues that we can actually, well, first of all, that we're we're free and open to discuss it with whoever you need to discuss it with at work, but also that you're equipped to be able to deal with those issues in advance as well. You were saying about starting the conversation and this being free to kind of talk about this type of stuff at work. But it seems to me and, you know, it's I feel like things have have come leaps and bounds in the last three years since I left my corporate role. But it's certainly not something we would have spoken about then. So I'd I'd love to know what your thoughts are on like turning this into something that is a water cooler chat. Like how do we, where do we even begin with that? Because if you're going from an environment where people don't really talk about that kind of stuff, they talk about kind of surface level things. How do you get the conversation going? So nothing like a global pandemic to help me, you know, uh, <laughs> spread my message um, <laughs> because it's 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 a universal experience, right? What yeah. we've been going through the last 15 months is a universal experience and everybody has something to say about it, right? It's very personal to everyone. And so um, 
often when I, when people ask me this question on, you know, what do I say to start these conversations, find, find a universal experience that you can relate to and ask the other person, you know, how's the pandemic been for you? You know, um, how has it affected your family, your work, your, you know, you can ease into a conversation by finding something to relate, uh, to the other, to the other person with, right. That gives you a common, common denominator, a common topic of conversation that then that you can then steer, um, in an, in, in a direction specifically related to your mental health. Because when, when you're talking about the pandemic, there's lots of topics of conversation. And if you want to use that as a door opener to discussing how it's made you feel, then you can steer the conversation in that way. Once you've kind of opened the door. I would also say if um, if you want to have a conversation with somebody because you notice that they haven't been feeling themselves or there's been a change in their behavior and you're worried about them um, and maybe that feels awkward or you don't want to you don't want them to feel like you're intruding, especially if it's not someone you have a super close relationship with, you could open with um, a conversation or a, a statement about about you first. You know, um, like I told you my story of burnout and overwhelm. Um, often when I share that story, people will turn around and share their story with me because it's, it's, they feel like this is a trusted place that if I'm being vulnerable, it's a safe space for them to be vulnerable back. Um, you know, if it's that, um, modeling behavior out loud. It's showing that this is a safe space uh, through your behavior and not just through your language. And then I th would also say the last thing I would say about that um, is pick your moment. Um, if you notice that somebody hasn't been showing up as their regular self, even if it's intuitive and you can't really put your finger on it, um, don't wait if you're noticing, it's probably reaching critical levels. Um, often, we, if there's something going on for us mental health-wise, we will retreat into ourselves and, um, you know, change our behavior to to um, make other people think that everything's fine, everything's normal, everything's going along the way that it should. But when you, when other people start to notice, it's likely that it's reaching more critical levels. So don't wait to ask somebody about it. Um, but definitely pick your moment, you know, don't ask them in the middle of a meeting in front of all their peers, um, yeah, yeah. you know, find an opportunity to go for a walk or, Hey, do you want to grab a coffee? And, um, you know, again, make the environment comfortable so that they know that it's a safe space, both physically and mentally to have those kinds of conversations. Um, pick your moment, but don't wait. Yeah, I think from what you're saying, it sounds like anyone can do that if you notice something. And mm -hmm. something I picked up on what you were saying there in relation to the behaviour change. So you're saying if there's a, that noticeable behaviour change, but actually what I was thinking, I, I made a note there, like people often mask what's going on for them. And, and I think you mentioned they're kind of putting, you know, pretending that everything's OK, putting on a brave face and um, all of that kind of thing. But when it reaches critical levels, then that's when things start to maybe unravel. So it's not a case of waiting necessarily until you see that change in behaviour, but just being proactive maybe about it at the start and, and checking in with people. And, mm -hmm. you know, something I heard at the start of the pandemic was this idea of asking people how they are, but actually, 
you know, but no, how, how actually are you? I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely asking because I'm genuine, you know, it's not just a, an expression. I'm not just saying, how are you? And in Ireland, you know, the typical answer is I'm grand, I'm fine. This other idea of how's the pandemic been for you? It's, it's a question that's been kind of burning in my mind for, well, for the last, what, nearly 18 months now at this stage. Because it's been different for everyone. You know, people have been let go. People have been on furlough. They've had reduced hours, reduced pay. Uh, you know, business owners, I've seen some really succeed during this time. I've seen some kind of get a bit disheartened by what's going on and dealing with their own issues and things like that as well. So, uh, you know, it's and then some people live by myself like I do and other people live with family and it's like they just can't really get away. So it's it's been, I think, wildly different experiences. So I do genuinely would love to know. So if anyone wants to share, if they're listening and want to share like what what has been the pandemic like, what has it been like for you? And maybe you'd like to answer, Lindsay. So I, I do. I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's the, I've heard it said, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. Yeah, you know, yeah, some yeah. people are driving in their million dollar yacht and some of us are paddling a leaky canoe, um, <laughs> you know, and, and most of us are somewhere in the middle. And I think it is, it, it's really important to remember that the experience has not been the same for all of us. Um, for me, I've been very fortunate, knock on wood. Um, me and my family have been healthy. Um, my parents came through COVID um, successfully and they are feeling great on the other side. Um, my, my, my business has been good because I get to have more conversations like this. People are, are much more willing to talk about these kinds of things. And so, um, it's been really, it's been really fulfilling for me to, to, to share these kinds of conversations with you. Um, but it's also been very lonely. You know, I haven't been home to my fountain to see my, my nieces and my nephews for Ever. <laughs> it mm, feels like forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my um, my sister, who's a teacher, is really struggling with not being able to have that contact with her kids. Mm. You know, you, they can't see her smile. Um, she's changed how she smiles so that she smiles big with her eyes, yeah. you know, so that they so that her kids can see that and she can make that kind of connection. Um and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I've been really fortunate to be able to have conversations about is, is how, how have things changed? What are we going to continue doing um, mm. even when the world returns to, um, you know, returns to not locked down? Um, I don't want to say that we're going back to normal because that's not a thing. But, um, you know, I, I'm I'm excited to see what we will keep doing, and I'm excited to see what we will um, go back to doing, but also what we will not go back to doing. You know, um, some of the, a lot of the work that I've been doing lately is around boundaries and setting yeah. boundaries. Mm. One of the things that I've loved is not feeling obligated to go to social events. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. And I've got that boundary now, and. Um, I'm looking forward to figuring out how I can maintain that boundary, <laughs> you know, and being a bit selective about where I want to go. Yeah, um, I can definitely relate to that. And, and certainly when the pandemic first 
hit, I noticed a considerable increase in the amount of time I had because I wasn't going to so many, and they were mostly business related, if I'm honest, but I wasn't going to so many events anymore. Um, And I do love this idea. Uh, Larry David, if anyone watches Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David springs to mind of, you know, he's a bit of a curmudgeon and using using the excuse of the, oh, I can't possibly do that pandemic, you know, it's it's a pandemic, so I couldn't possibly meet up with people um, and using it as an excuse. Um, But this idea of boundaries, and that's something that kind of came up in in some of the steps around um, of what we do. Any any ideas or th- wisdom to share around how to set clear boundaries, especially at work and maybe in the context of mental health as well, because it's kind of like you don't want to let everything out, you know, and it's like, what do you share and what do you not share? I think it's really important to figure out what is important to you because you will have, you know, if, if you sat down in a quiet moment and listed out all of your values and all of the things that are important to you, and especially when you think about the work-related things. So uh, something that might be very important to you is that you turn off your computer at 5 p.m. You have, you know, four hours of pure family time where you don't pick up your phone, you don't look at your computer, you put your kids to bed and then at nine, you go back to work as an example. If that's really important to you, um, write it down and then organize your day, your life, your schedule to be able to, uh, to achieve that, um, that, that flexible schedule. But you need to tell other people, It's no good to set a boundary and then keep it to yourself because people will inadvertently cross that boundary and that's on you. (laughs) You know, once you tell them, once you communicate to them, especially at work, as an example, um, and give, you know, give your boss, your colleagues, the opportunity to um, share with you their boundaries. And Mm -hmm. then you have a discussion about how those two things will mesh, you know, if, if your work needs coverage between five and nine, but it's important that you're off between five and nine, then maybe your colleague who doesn't have kids in the family and really loves to stay up late and get up, you know, get up later, will take that second half of the day kind of shift, you know? Um, So figure out what's important to you, talk to other people about it. And then, and then when they cross those boundaries inadvertently or intentionally, um, you can remind them of the conversation that you had, you know, if you don't communicate, that's on you. But if you have communicated and they're still crossing boundaries, that's on them. Um, you will also have some, have some recognition or realization that you might, you will probably have to adjust, you know, you can set a boundary and then you sort of live it, um, and figure out what it feels like in reality and then adjust as, as necessary. And also what's important to you today might not be as important to you tomorrow. Um, well, hopefully not tomorrow, but you know, a few months from now as life goes on. So again, you know, Think about that, give some consideration to that and then adjust if necessary. Yeah, brilliant. And I I, I saw this really great meme recently uh, where it it showed someone saying, or it might have even been a video or a reel on Instagram or something fun like that. And it was like um, someone communicated a boundary and nothing happened, you know. And it's this idea that we're so afraid to actually communicate what it is that we need that we're afraid that people won't like us. We're afraid that we'll look needy. We're afraid that we'll 
we'll look a specific way. So we're, we're so afraid to do it that we don't do it until such a time that someone repeatedly crosses a boundary that we haven't communicated and we just blow a gasket then at that stage and be like, listen, you've been doing this for ages. And it's like, but you never told me, you know, so in the, like, I suppose for me, you need to communicate that early on. And it's, it's having that conversation and it might seem difficult, but actually it'd be much more difficult the longer you leave it, much like in in the case of mental health, that you need to have that conversation kind of early on rather than leaving it until things are getting really, really critical, as you said. It's funny, uh, using boundaries, setting boundaries as a stress reducer is ridiculously stressful. You know, like <laughs> yeah. in the short term, setting boundaries is so stressful mm. because of all the reasons, you, you know, you, the perception, you don't want the perception of you to change. What if you don't know what those priorities or values are? Um, once you set them, how do you maintain them? How do you push back? Often the people that you're setting the boundaries four are the ones that get the angriest or get the most offended or something. And so you have to fight against that response. But in the long term, recognizing and having enough confidence in yourself um, that, you know, um, that self-care truly setting boundaries is a, is a form of self-care. So if you can believe in yourself and love yourself enough to set some of those boundaries, over the long term will be hugely beneficial and it's going to take practice. It is absolutely not easy. You may not get it right the first time. And oh, similar to what we talked about with preventing burnout, you don't have to go big right out of the gate. Mm. You can start small by saying no to dessert at dinner. You know, there could be a boundary um, that you could practice or or say no to the um, the charity canvasser that comes to your door. You can practice saying no and setting those boundaries until your brain starts to realize that, oh, this isn't so bad. This is okay, And then you can, you know, set bigger and bigger and more important, uh, more higher priority kind of boundaries, because now you're, you know, your skill in boundary setting and, and maintaining is is increasing. You're flexing that muscle. Yeah, totally. Yeah, love yeah. it. Um, Lindsay, we've covered a lot of ground here today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that kind of comes up in in mental health topics, let's say? Yeah. Um, just kind of to reinforce the fact that um, our collective wellness will continue to be raised at work if we can have conversations about all the things that are going on in our minds. You know, if we can be our authentic selves at work um, and talk about everything that's exciting us, everything that's bothering us, um, you know, we will collectively feel healthier, be more productive, feel more engagement and, you know, a sense of control over our, our, our work lives and our home lives. Um, it really, it really is a holistic approach to our, our professional um, settings that will continue to, to increase the value of each other and our organizations. Normalizing these kinds of conversations will continue to raise mental health maturity and, and collective, collective well-being in organizations, and that cannot be undervalued.
Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally agree. Uh, Lindsay, the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what makes you happier at work? That feeling of of empowerment and um, that feeling of safety to know that I get to bring my unique strengths and gifts to my workplace um, and feel valued for doing that. You know, that, that sense of control and empowerment over um over how I, how I show up at work is, is absolutely what makes me the happiest at work. Brilliant. Love it. And if people want to connect with you, find out more about you, feel free to talk about your own podcast as well. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, so I do two things. Um, the most important thing that I'm doing right now is this work in in workplace mental health. And I do that with my organization, Mental Health in Minutes. Uh, a website by the same name, social media by the same name, and a podcast by the same name. And I'm on the podcast, which you have been a guest, is um, we have conversations about how to uh, implement workplace mental health programming, um, make it part of the culture. And it's quite, um, the thing I love about it is it's quite tactical. We talk about how, we talk about the mechanics, you know, it's it's not enough to tell people they need to go on vacation to increase their mental well-being. We actually let them know how they can do that, um, how leaders can do that, how employees can support other employees and going on vacation, that kind of thing. Um, And we also, the other thing that we talk about is how to get senior leadership engaged because sometimes um, they're not as uh, willing to talk about these kinds of things or willing Mm. to see the the tangible ROI value of this kind of work. And so we talk about how to engage leadership in the conversation and get them to pay for uh, Mm -hmm. mental health programming uh, at work as well. So yeah, I'd love to have more discussions. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I love, first of all, that it's really practical and tactical right down to the it's not just that you need to do this we know already that we need to do it it's how to actually implement it so Mm -hmm. what actual steps do you need to take in order to make it happen and interestingly on a recent conversation on the podcast we spoke about how leaders typically you know training has changed over I'm trying to think when I learned my my first kind of intro to management, let's say, was probably about 15 years ago or so. And there were certainly none of the, these types of topics then. And and so the leaders who are who are in those senior positions at the moment probably haven't. That's not how they've been trained. That's not how they've learned how to do things. And so this is all new. And I love then that you're you're introducing the concept of how to get that buy-in because it's really, really important because, like you say, they're the ones that are paying for it. So they need to understand why it's important to, to do this. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's no good if you don't have executive leadership sponsorship, right? Because because often they set the tone, they set the culture, um, you know, they set the direction of the organization. And if they're bought in, if they see the value of it, then um, you're just that much further ahead, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lindsay. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for letting me be here. Clearly, I can talk about this this stuff for hours. So it's it's been my it's been my privilege. Thank you. That was Lindsay Racknell, expert in hope. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation today. I know I certainly did. I really took a lot from it. And 
Don't forget to hop on over to LinkedIn. Um, myself and Lindsay will be going live on LinkedIn time TBC at the time of this recording, but I do tend to go weekly live on LinkedIn. If you connect with me there, you should get a notification to say when I'm going live and we will be discussing some of the key points on the podcast and we would very much welcome your questions or comments on that as well. Now, just to wrap up what we spoke about, we did start by talking about burnout and this sense of over overwhelm that people can feel. And I know certainly people who I've spoken to who have experienced that great sense of burnout, people kind of use the word maybe a little bit flippantly at times, but those who have really experienced severe burnout describe it in exactly the way that Lindsay describes it. So it's not enough cares left to give. It's this state of emotional exhaustion. You just don't really care. The to-do list is waiting there, but you just don't feel any sort of urgency or any sort of willingness to actually do it. And I know personally speaking, I haven't reached that stage, but I've got very close. And oftentimes the temptation is to keep going because there's always work that needs to be done. And that's the opposite really of what we should be doing. Um, what Lindsay shared specifically in relation to that is that it's, it's it's a prolonged state of stress and it's not enough just to remove the stressors that are causing it. We need to close that stress cycle. So some of the steps she spoke about were move your body, laughter. And I know for me, especially during the pandemic, I have made a, cons- a concerted effort essentially to bring more laughter into my life, whether that is looking up clips from some of my favourite TV shows on YouTube or putting on 20 minutes. Um, if anyone's wondering, it would be the US office, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Peep Show, those kind of shows to really, really make me laugh, give me a good belly laugh. So move your body, laughter, skin to skin contact. And I know certainly, you know, that's something that's really been missing. We can't really hug people anymore. We can't even shake hands. Um, having a creative outlet as well. And I listened to another podcast recently that that really advocated for this type of, uh, they, they called it deep play. So finding a hobby that is, it's not just sitting around watching Netflix. It's not listening to podcasts. It's not reading. It's something that's quite active. It could be crafting. It could be hiking. It could be photography. It could be painting, anything like that. But something that's quite active and creative really, really works. And the one that she added in as well is breathing. And sometimes we forget just the power of the breath and the control that we have over the breath as well. The important thing here as well is to start small. So if there's one thing that you can change of all of those things, what might it be? What will you do differently? We spoke as well about feeling comfortable to express yourself and that sense of psychological safety at work. And it's not about checking yourself at the door. It's about being the same person at home as you are in the office, uh, be that a virtual office or be that a physical office as well. It's about starting the conversation then. So normalizing mental health. We spoke about reducing the stigma and how there's a change in terminology. So we used to often talk about mental illness versus mental health. Everyone has mental health in the same way that everyone has physical health. Um, And the language around those uh, is evolving. 
We spoke as well about the universal experience of the pandemic and genuinely, I have been meaning to ask this, but I just thought it was very cliche. I would genuinely like to know how has the pandemic been for you? For me, I completed my dissertation for my master's during the pandemic. I live alone, so it's quite a lonely time. I do live close to family, so I would connect with them once a week, which was really, really nice. But for a long time, I wasn't able to see my parents. I do have a tendency to retreat into my So I probably did a little bit more of that than what I should have. But I'm realizing now the benefits of just connecting with friends really makes a huge difference. We spoke about being vulnerable generally and modeling the behavior. So not just talking about, you know, not just using your language to describe what needs to happen, but actually modeling that behavior as well. We spoke about the different ways that behavior can change. So this idea of masking what's going, what's really going on or retreating into yourself. As I mentioned, I have a tendency to do that. We spoke as well about boundaries and this sense of not feeling obligated to go to social events, you know, with COVID being the excuse. But what will the reason be going forward? I was going to say the excuse, but not necessarily the excuse. Um, if you don't want to do something, you know, you have every right to say no to that. We spoke about communicating uh, our boundaries and sharing them and asking colleagues what their boundaries might be as well and, and speaking about it quite openly. We spoke about the fact that boundaries are a form of self-care as well, and it facilitates us to really be authentic and talk about what's on our minds. And at the end of the day, it increases wellness and it increases employee engagement. On next week's podcast episode, we talk all about trust in the workplace and specifically the steps that HR can take to increase that level of trust within the workplace. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.